but there's an awful lot here. And before we get into it, I'm going to thumb back to the book of Zephaniah for just a moment. Because God makes a statement here <coughs> in chapter 3, I guess it is. It says in verse 11 of chapter 3 in Zephaniah, In that day you shall not be ashamed for all your doings, wherein you have transgressed against me. So whatever we've been, whatever we've done, there will come a point of renewal and forgiveness and restitution, and we'll no longer be ashamed of the past, which is uh, somewhat of a theme, or a a sub-theme at least, that we've been seeing in Romans. He says, For then I will take away out of the midst of you them that rejoice in your pride, and you shall no more be haughty because of my holy mountain." Not vain, not proud, not self-righteous. That will be taken away. And he says, our righteousness then will be his, there in the last verse of Isaiah 54. He says, I will also leave in the midst of you an afflicted and poor people, or meek and humble, as it says in the New King James. A meek and humble people, and they shall trust in the name of the Eternal. Now, as we get... Uh, into Romans 9, bear in mind what he said there. He's looking for a meek and humble people, one who will not be vain and self-righteous. And isn't that what we're dealing with here in Romans? You have, in that congregation in Rome, you had Jews who were self-righteous and leaning to their own understanding and were proud and haughty Uh, over the Gentile dogs as they looked at them. And then you had the Gentiles whose minds God had been opened, and the Jews looked down on them, and the Gentiles had a racist problem as well with the Jews. So there was a great divide there. It was not a peaceful, happy congregation, if you will. Uh, There were a lot of prejudices, a lot of problems... And that's what, as we've been looking at this, we've been focusing on that issue and how he addressed both the Jews and the Gentiles. And he doesn't let up as we go on into chapter 9 and 10 because this was obviously a very uh, large difficulty in the church at Rome. Everything was not at peace. Now, in chapter 8, he was telling us how much God loves us and how much he loves everybody in the whole world, uh, trying to convince everybody that they ought to love each other (laughs) and that they ought to love him. So, uh, we face these things. We face them in the church. We still face them in the church. So, there's an awful lot for us to learn here from the problems that were in the church at Rome. And indeed, God had this letter by Paul written for us here because there is an awful lot in here for us to learn from. We're not just reading ancient history. We're reading what's going on in the church of God today with different groups thinking they're better uh, than someone else or they're more righteous than someone else, i.e. the Philadelphia-Laodicea divide, 
like the Republicans and Democrats. <laughs> you know, it, it's in the nation and it's in the church. And here we are. So he's trying to convince us in chapter 8 that God loves us all. So why do we hate each other? So let's go on then. <clears throat> in cha chapter 9, he says, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. Well, Paul saw these problems within the church, and he says, I'm telling you before God, this is very heavy on my mind and my emotions and my feelings, uh, just as you and I, right here on this property, have heaviness and continual sorrow of heart because of the division that is here. So it's not just the rest of the church, it's right here before our very eyes. And it's difficult, isn't it? It's very hard. And Paul was looking at the exact same thing, and he says, this is the effect it's having on me. <laughs> so, uh, at least we can, can commiserate in our own difficulties that which he was going through and that which he felt for these people. For I wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh." who are Israelites, to whom pertains the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises. So here he's addressing blood Israelites, some of which were sitting in that congregation. And he says, My heart is very heavy that these are Israelite people born of Abraham through the right line, and yet there are severe problems with those people. And he says, I wish they could live and I could die. <laughs> uh, he felt that heavy about it. So they were the ones that were given the Scripture, given the leadership by God, given the prophets. Uh, when they wanted a king, he gave them a king. They're the ones whom God was working with from Abraham on down. And he says, they're not what they ought to be. And that's why his heart was heavy. So he says, They were given all these things in verse 4, whose are the fathers, and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever, amen, or so be it. He says, Christ came for those people first and foremost, to the Jew first, then to the Gentile. Okay? Verse 6, not as though the word of God has taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. He's going to explain now that there's a difference between those who were given all that they were given in the past and those whom God considers Israel or did at that point in the early New Testament church. He's going to say, everybody that says we're an Israelite isn't really an Israelite in God's view. Okay, we'll, ex we'll get into that here now. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children. So even though they might have been born with Israelite blood through Abraham, that doesn't mean they're children in God's estimation today. 
in Paul's day or today. You have a lot of Israelites by blood living in this nation and in Western Europe and other parts of the world where they've gone who are not of Israel. Let's see that. He says, neither because there's, you, can't, you can't holler, I'm a bloodline Israelite. Doesn't mean a thing. Is what he's trying to get across. In Isaac shall your seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. So even be, though they be born not only of Abraham, but of Isaac, even of Jacob, that doesn't mean that today they're the children of God. So who is he addressing when he says that? The haughty Jews who were being converted, who still thought they were better than the Gentiles sitting next to them. And he's telling them, doesn't matter your bloodline, you're not the children of promise. What promise? New covenant, eternal life. You don't have that promise, he said, just by blood. But the children of the promise are counted for the seed. For this is the word of promise. Here's, he says, I'll go back and I'll tell you what God promised. Uh, but before we get there, though, let's, uh, let's focus here for a moment. He says, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. I'm going to thumb back to Galatians 6. Here he's talking about circumcision in verse 15. For in Christ, Emmanuel, neither circumcision avails anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creature or a new creation. So he's reiterating what he had said earlier in Romans about circumcision not being important. So uh, the Gentiles obviously had not been circumcised, and they which were of the seed of Israel physically, had been. So there he's saying, it doesn't make any difference whether you were a blood Israelite, therefore circumcised, or not. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them, and mercy, and upon the Israel of God. So he's saying there's a difference between the Israel of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the current Israel of God that the circumcision of the flesh and the physical blood meant nothing, but it's a circumcision of the heart and the spirit that is what is important. That is the current Israel of God, those who are converted and circumcised of the heart. And that's what he's trying to get across to these Jews here who were sitting next to these unwashed, uncircumcised Gentile dogs, in their opinion. He says, well, I'm going to go back and explain the promise that came to Abraham. Verse 9, For this is the word of promise. At this time will I come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah, wife of Isaac, also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, it went through Abraham and Isaac. It did not go through Abraham and Ishmael. Or then it went through Jacob, not through Esau which he'll get into a little bit. So he says, claiming Abraham, then claiming, claiming Isaac, isn't what it's all about. For the children being not yet born, 
neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to his election, might stand, not of works, but of him that calls. So he's saying, God promised Abraham, and then along comes Isaac through Sarah and Rebekah, and Isaac had done nothing. He was a baby. He was promised before he was born. Jacob was too. So it wasn't from their works that they were considered to be righteous. Right? That's, that's a point he's making because he's going to say to the Jews, your works aren't getting you anything. Your works of the flesh. So it's that which God decided, that which God chose or elected to do. It's what he's trying to get across. That God's choosing might stand, not of works, but of him that calls. Now, there was a time you didn't know the truth. And you didn't find it on your own. You didn't. It found you. Somehow, it found you. Through a relative, through a magazine cover blowing across the desert in Africa. I've heard stories like that where people picked it up and looked at it and thought, that's nice, and then wrote for the plain truth. Uh, it found them. And he, he'll explain that in detail a little later on. So, it is the calling of God. Again, no man can come except the Spirit of the Father draw him. So, God had to call each and every one of us at some point in time, and He is the one that decided that you would learn the truth. And he found a way to get it to you. In my own family, we didn't just come up with the truth all of a sudden. My uncle was called first, and I don't remember now how he came across it. I think he just started hearing the radio as he drove somewhere and flipping through the dials, and there was Herbert Armstrong. Uh, so it's not something he found, it was something that came to him. And then he started coming over on our, at our house on Friday night and uh, going through the news and the plain truth and various things, watching, was watching clear back then, you know, for the end. That was in 1953 or so, 52, uh, that God had showed him, and then he showed us, and we began to listen. So, nothing I did, nothing my parents did, it came to us. So he's saying here, it came to Abraham, it came to Isaac, <clears throat> and it was before they did anything. Now, Abraham was trying to obey God, and then God saw him and called him. And then he told him, before Isaac ever showed up, you're going to have him. So, nothing Isaac did. So you Jews, it's nothing you did either, is what's being implied here, and then is explained as he goes on. <clears throat> Not of works, but of him that calls. It was said to her, the elder shall serve the younger. So before they were even born, she knew uh, the order, and that the younger brother would not be, in that sense, given uh, the firstborn rights, but the younger one would be. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, be Esau have I hated. That's in Malachi 1. 
And in Malachi 1, he's talking about how God chooses. This is important, and we'll get to it a little later on. So I think I'll turn back there and read it. Uh, In Malachi, since he refers to it. Malachi is written primarily to the ministers with with everyone else, of course, in mind. He says, The burden of the word of the Eternal to Israel by Malachi. So this is a heavy weight, this message, that was sent to the church, modern Israel, uh, the Israel of God. I have loved you, says the Eternal, yet you say, and isn't that what he said there in Romans 8? I have loved you, says the Eternal. He's trying to convince us there in Romans 8 that he loves us. All of us, Jew and Gentile. Yet you say, wherein have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Eternal, yet I love Jacob and I hated Esau. Now that's essentially what Paul is saying there in Romans 9. Is that God chooses whom he will work with and who he will not work with, he will not work with. It's his calling, it's his decision. Just as it is with you and me. He either has called us or he has not. Now, I don't think the way this is written, I didn't check the Hebrew, but I don't think it means that God had a hatred for Esau in that sense. It's that he chose to work through Jacob, and God was hoping that Esau would repent and change his attitude. And Paul makes that very clear there in Hebrews 12, that Esau just would not repent, for if he had, God would have forgiven him. But he didn't. So it isn't that God had this hatred or this vitriol or this anger in that sense at Esau. God has loved all mankind. And I don't know that Esau has lost his chance at eternal life. I don't know that about him and I don't know that about Judas. Men have decided they're lost, but the scripture doesn't say that. God is positive, and he gives us a list in Hebrews 11, a partial list at least from the Old Testament, of people who are going to be in the kingdom of God. So God tells us of success, but he does not condemn any one person in Scripture and say they're going into the lake of fire. And I take that to mean that Esau was never converted, was he? No. He had anger at his brother from the time he was old enough to understand anger. Judas was never converted. Is he lost? Not necessarily. He killed himself. That's murder. That can be forgiven. But Peter was told, even after Judas had killed himself, when you are converted. So if Peter wasn't converted, Judas wasn't converted. And everybody has a chance at salvation. Now, my personal opinion, for what it's worth, is that Judas and Esau have their true chance without the hatred that Esau had. That will dissipate in the second resurrection. And he'll come out of the ground like everybody else who had whatever attitudes and have his opportunity truly to choose life or death. Because the, the, the deck was stacked against him, wasn't it? Wasn't the deck kind of stacked against Cain in some ways? 
he had decided to be a, a farmer. His brother decided to be a shepherd. And God said the sacrifices couldn't be carrots, they had to be animals. So, his human reasoning was, my carrots and rutabagas are just as good as your sheep. Which is human reasoning. But he killed his brother over it. Now, can he repent of that? I think he'll be given the chance. I might be wrong, but God doesn't say different than that, does he? I'm glad he's given me a chance. Aren't you glad you got one? Because if I've thought just as bad a thoughts as Esau had did, or as bad a thoughts maybe as Cain did, there was a time when a business partner cheated me out of $2 million. And I fought myself for weeks about not whether I'd kill him, but how I could get away with it. <laughs> you know? And I finally got my attitude in line through the help and the Spirit of God, I'm sure. And I got over it. Now it's no big deal to me. It's just money and it's in the past and I'm looking forward to something far greater than two million bucks. Including the three million that I supposedly earned right here. <laughs> At a hundred dollars a month. Yeah, right. Where do people come up with this fantasy? Anyway, that's aside. But Esau would not obey God and God worked through Jacob ahead of time the younger instead of the older. And that was God's decision. <clears throat> Whereas Edom said, verse 4, We are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus says the Eternal of hosts, They shall build, but I will throw down. <laughs> so he says, Esau didn't follow me. And he says, I'm going to become great anyhow. And God says, go for it. But I'm going to tear you down. Now that's, being fulfilled right now in prophecy. Because the book of Obadiah is a prophecy for Jacob here at the end when, ja when uh, Esau and the Edomites, Ashkenazi Jews, many of them, are in charge of financial things. They've built up the finances of the world and they are going to be involved in the destruction of this country, Jacob, and Western Europe very shortly now. And they're going to say, we built this up, and we won. Jacob is destroyed. And God's going to say, nah, I'll fix you. So God's the one that decides. Not Jacob, not Esau. So he's telling here these Jews, you aren't the one that decided you'd be a Jew. That was God's election. He could have worked through anybody he wanted to. So it was said to her, the elder shall serve the younger, and I chose Esau over Jacob. Verse 14, what shall we say then? What do we conclude from this? Is there unrighteousness with God? Was God unrighteous in working through Jacob instead of Esau? Was God unrighteous in working through Herbert Armstrong instead of Billy Graham? or through the Pope, or whoever. No, God can choose whoever He wants to do His work. Didn't Christ go out 
and choose which of the fishermen and tax collectors he wanted to do his work. He could have gone to the Pharisees and said, Oh man, there's some smart people, and they're dedicated and zealous, and I want them to do my work. No, it was his decision. He didn't want the Pharisees. In fact, he had some nasty things he said about them. He went out and got himself a bunch of no-name fishermen and tax collectors that everybody hated. Well, they didn't hate the fishermen, but they did the tax collectors. So it was his decision. Is he unrighteous in that? You know who thought so? These Jews sitting here. The Pharisees. Why did he work through them? Why didn't he call us? We're the leaders of Israel. No, he didn't want you. Sorry. Is God unrighteous? Nope. God forbid. It's his decision. For he said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. His decision. You know, your kids get in an argument. You decide who's right and who's wrong and who you'll have compassion on and who you'll punish. It's your decision, not theirs. It's the way God is. So then it is not of him that wills, nor of him that runs, but of God that shows mercy. Now, the Pharisees and the Jews of that day were zealous. They worked hard. They did wonderful, great works and even wrote them on their long white sleeves so everybody could be reminded how wonderful they were and what good they did. But God didn't choose them in spite of all the wonderful things that they did. Didn't impress him because it was done in self-righteousness and for the adulation of the people around them. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, much less your neighbor. It's him that shows mercy. So it's not all your good works, you Jews, that think you were so righteous, but God chooses whom he will choose. Carpenters, fishermen, whatever. For the scripture, verse 17, says to Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. A Pharaoh was pretty important in the Egyptian culture, wasn't he? Big man. And God said, I've chosen you to make a fool out of and to die in the Red Sea. That's why I've chosen you. I didn't choose you to be righteous or to be the leader of the world, which is what you want to be. I've chose you for ignominy and to be a perpetual example of unrighteousness throughout history, which is what he still is. God's choice. Verse 18, Therefore has he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardens. <clears throat> so he uses some very prominent examples, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and now Pharaoh, to show this to people who thought they were the chosen, the important, the righteous. That, hey, not unless God says so. <laughs> and he can have mercy where he will, and whoever he will, he can harden. 
whether it be Esau or Pharaoh or whoever. You will say then to me. Now, he said, I've been telling you this. Now you're going to have a reaction to me. This is what you're going to say to me. He already had it figured out. Why does he yet find fault for who has resisted his will? So they say, they're sitting there listening to this. And they say, well, if he has mercy on whom he will and does what he wants to do and is his decision, why would he reject us? Because we're not resisting his will. We've kept the law. We've done what Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses told us. We're not resisting God. So why isn't he having mercy on us? Was the pharisaical view. He should have, in other words, is what they're saying. We're the ones that have been doing what's right. We haven't resisted God. Well, that's not what Christ told them. Yes, you have resisted God. You're of your father the devil. That's about as low as you can get, isn't it? <laughs> you're of your father the devil. And you don't even know it. You think that you're the children of God and you're the father is the devil. There's people in the church of God right now just like that. They're liars. And Satan's a liar. And he who you follow is he who your father is. Spiritually speaking. So, he says, you're going to find fault with this. And here's my answer. They say, who's resisted his will? We haven't. And then Paul says, no. But, O oh man, who are you that reply against God... Shall the th thing formed say to him that formed it, Why have you made me thus? Has not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel to honor and another to dishonor? So he's saying God has decided to honor these Gentiles sitting here in the chairs beside you, and he's decided not to honor the Pharisaical leaders of the Jewish nation. Are you going to argue with God over this? Ultimately, he's telling them, you're going to have to put your vanity, your ego, your selfishness, your self-righteousness aside and accept what God has done. Like it or not. You know, sometimes you can be resisting God and not know it. Because Paul read their minds and says, he knew them. I mean, he'd been one of them. And he knew how he thought. I've got to get rid of these Christians. I'll kill him. So he'd been there, done that. And he knew exactly what their attitude was. Now these were being converted, but they had that background. And even though they might have changed doctrine and had accepted Christ in name, he knew that their prejudices and their attitudes and their emotions still need to be dealt with. Because conversion is only partial. None of us are completely converted to the mind of God yet. We say we're converted. Well, yeah, in a larger sense, but we're not totally converted. We won't be totally converted until we are converted from physical to spirit. Then we will be fully converted. So, it's partial. But these people thought that they were totally converted. Just by their bloodline, they were righteous. And therefore, they followed the law, they said. 
But Christ said, no, no, you lie and steal and commit adultery and all these things, and you think you're righteous. No, it's not the way it works. So he says, why do you question God? He's called some of you Jews. He's called these Gentiles. Don't question it. Be thankful for it. What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long sufferings the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? Now, most of the people of this world today are fitted for destruction, are they not? Over, well over 90% of the population of the earth is about to be destroyed. And unless the Spirit of God comes to them sometime in the future, millennium, great white throne judgment, they're fitted for destruction. It's where they're headed. Thankfully, God has a plan. But He has fitted the world for destruction. He says, everybody around you including you, were in that category. Now he's decided to make you into something else. Instead of a lump of clay, he's fashioning you into worthy pots or vessels to be kept of honor. Verse 23, And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy. Can any of us say we deserved to be called into God's church? Can we say we deserve to be given the opportunity of eternal life? No, not a one of us. We're vessels of mercy. He decided to call us in spite of ourselves. That was his de decision. He didn't call all of your brothers and sisters. He didn't call all your parents, your grandparents, even all your children. He called you. Why? Were you any, were you any better than your siblings that he didn't call? No. Just as bad, maybe worse. Weak in the base. We're vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared to glory. So he's telling these people, doesn't matter what blood's running through your veins as you sit here in the Rome church, God has had mercy on you, Jew or Gentile. Even us, whom he has called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. So Paul is telling the Jews, these Gentiles sitting here with you are vessels of mercy that God has chosen and called individually. And how can you call them dogs when God calls them his sons? Let's, let's get over this, <laughs> you know. As he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people which were not my people, and her beloved which was not beloved. You remember the story there where he told Hosea to go marry a harlot and that she would have children. And God would reject those children. And then a little later on in the chapter he says, I will accept them. He goes on to say that here. As he says in Hosea, I will call my, them my people which were not my people, daughters, I mean children of a harlot, not his people, and her beloved which was not beloved. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, 
There shall they be called the children of the living God. Now, why is he saying, why is he quoting Hosea there to these people? Because they were not children of harlotry. They were not children of the world. They were through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And yet he said, I told Hosea to go marry a hooker so that I could say these aren't my people. And then I'm going to turn around and I'm going to claim them and they will be my people. So you Jews, God says, were not my people. The Gentiles were not my people. But now I've called them and they are my people. Now, Hosea was a man of Israel. So, the baby born, babies born to the harlot were at least half Israelite. And it might be even that the harlot was Israelite, for all I know. So, they may have been full-blood Israelites, but he still said of them, if they were full-blood Israelites, these aren't my people. That ought to be pretty clear. They shall be called the children of the living God. Isaiah also cries concerning Israel. Here's another witness. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. A remnant is about 10%. And we've used that in terms of the church today. And in terms of the nations of Israel, because 90% of the people, physical people of Israel are about to be killed. So he's, he's, say, he's telling them here, just because you were born with Israelite blood doesn't mean anything because only like 10% of Israel is going to be saved. So your chance of dying, though you have Israelite blood, is about 90%. Being Israelite ain't going to save you. It's a whole point. For he will finish the work and cut it short in his righteousness, because a short work will the eternal make upon the earth. So he says, only a remnant of Israel is going to be left. You may sit up in your self-righteousness and say you're great and God loves you and you're the chosen people, but God's about to choose to kill 90% of the so-called chosen people. So where does that leave you? And as Isaiah said before, except the Lord of the Sabbath had left us a seed, we had been like Sodom and Gomorrah, totally wiped out. So Isaiah was inspired to prophesy clear back then that if God hadn't decided that his promise to Abraham would be kept and a remnant saved, Israel would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. Nothing left. So don't stand on your Israelite blood, is again the whole point here. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles, which followed not after righteousness, have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. Is that what we're concluding here? What shall we say? You who were born Israelite and think that your circumcision means something, we're going to be like Sodom and Gomorrah. And here these Gentiles sitting beside you understand the truth of God. 
What are we going to say? What is there left to say? The Gentiles, which followed not after righteousness, have attained to righteousness. So he's saying here, these Gentiles sitting with you in this congregation are righteous. And Israel, for the most part, wasn't. That's hard to take with the prejudices that they had. But theirs is the righteousness of faith, not of works. You thought that you were doing all these great works and that made you righteous. No, God says that's not what makes you righteous. It's believing God and walking forward in faith, believing what He says He will do is true. But we doubt God. He says, I'm going to do this. And we say, oh, well, yeah, but I no, he's not going to do that. He's going to do this. Or, uh, you know, we doubt him. No, this is believable. This book is believable. Whatever he says in here is going to happen. But Israel, which followed after the law of, followed after the law of righteousness, the law of God is a law of righteousness. It's not an evil thing. It's a law of righteousness has not attained to the law of righteousness. They had a law which could make... It was a righteous law. But they had not, even with the law, attained righteousness. That takes you back to chapter 3, where he says, what advantage did the Jew have? Well, they had the words, the oracles, the law of God. And it didn't do them any good. And then he calls them a bunch of names like Christ did there later in chapter 3. He's repeating that right here. They had the law, but it didn't make them righteousness. So wherefore, or what do you make of this, in other words? Because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whosoever believes on him shall not be ashamed. Now he's telling these people, you should be ashamed because you did not accept the one that God sent, Christ. He says these Gentiles believe in Christ now, but you didn't. You rejected him. Now, these that were in the church at Rome were among the very few who had changed and were accepting Christ. But he's trying to tell them, all that you thought you did in the past means nothing. It's belief in Christ and serving Him and believing what He says is true that leads to the righteousness of God instead of the righteousness of works. So he says, brethren, in chapter 10, My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel that it might be saved. Now he's saying it hasn't attained righteousness. It is not in the good favor of God. But he loved his people. Don't you love the people of this nation? I do. Uh, I don't want to see them destroyed. But there's no preventing it. I've talked with quite a few people from Europe in the last couple of weeks who've been guests here. And you know what? 
They're just about as clueless as Americans. They have no idea what's coming down on them. God says sudden destruction, and not just on Ephraim, but on all Israel. And those people, they don't know. Americans, they got their TV screen and their phone screen and their job, and that's about all they think about. Unless it's these idiotic Kavanaugh hearings or something, they kind of get involved in politics or whatever. (coughs) But I was talking to a a French lady last night. Oh, these Muslims coming in, she says, they will assimilate. They're, They're refugees. They don't have food. They're in danger of death at home. So they're all coming here to live a better life. And she says there, were, there was rape and there was murder before they got here. Not near as much. But she's, she's just blind to that. But God says that they're going to come in and they're going to destroy. But they're oblivious to it, just like most Americans are. But his heart's desire about Israel, that they might be saved. Now, what he's saying there, then, is that they are not saved. Just because you're a blood Israelite doesn't mean anything. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. The Pharisees had a zeal for God through Abraham and Moses, but not according to true knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness... (coughs) and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. In other words, self-righteousness. Raising yourself up by your own bootstraps. For Christ is the end, the purpose, the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes. And Israel had not accepted the true God. And Israel today does not know the true God. They worship, they know not what. (coughs) They may not be giving the sign of the goat and (coughs) outright Satan worship. But when they say the law of God is done away with, they're worshiping Satan whether they know it or not. That's even worse in some ways than the outright Luciferians who are not deceived. They know they're worshiping Satan. But the Methodists and the Baptists and the Church of Christ out there and the Mormons don't know they're worshiping Satan. But they are. For Moses describes the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which does those things shall live by them. So the law is a righteous law, and he says you should live by it, But the righteousness which is of Christ speaks on this wise. He says this is the difference between the Old Covenant under Moses and today. You people have been looking to the past and the law of Moses thinking that was going to save you. And he says, no, there's something bigger here now, is what he's trying to get across to them. The righteousness which is of faith is like this. Say not in your heart... Who shall ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down from above? Or who shall descend into the deep, that is, to bring up Christ again from the dead? Who is going to say, 
I will produce what needs to be produced, even if it's Christ. But what does it say? The Word is near you, even in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the Word of faith which we preach. So he's saying, it isn't that which came from Moses and the law, but it's what I'm preaching to you today about faith in Christ and belief in Him. That's what counts. That if you shall confess with the mouth the eternal Emmanuel, and shall believe in your heart, not just your words, but in your heart, that God both has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes to righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made to salvation. For the scripture says, Whosoever believes on him shall not be ashamed. Now, he's already said that these people would be ashamed because they had not accepted Christ. He says, if you do, then you won't be ashamed. You'll be forgiven. What are you ashamed of? Sin, mistakes, uh, things we did that we didn't want anybody to know and might still not. That's what we're ashamed of. But through Christ, the past is forgiven and there's nothing you can be ashamed of. Now, they're trying to make Judge Kavanaugh ashamed for something that he did or did not do when he was a teenager. (laughs) You know what? Most teenagers make mistakes somewhere along the line, but some of them actually grow up. And how are you going to judge a man by what he did 30, 40, 50 years ago? Why not judge him by what he is today? But no, let's go back 40 years ago and see if we can find some dirt somewhere by somebody that appears very clearly to be lying about it in the first place. And even people she knew who said saw it said, no, we didn't. What are you talking about, lady? So they're trying to give him something to be ashamed of. And I'm sure that in his background, whether this is it or not, there is probably something to be ashamed of. Everybody has a past. Everybody has a history. Everybody has skeletons of one kind or another in the closet. There are things you've thought or done. Uh, Maybe you were a good kid and didn't ever do anything bad. But like I said, you thought it. I did. You did. But through the forgiveness of God, we have nothing to be ashamed of. So now, when your neighbors accuse you or me... It's all hollow, isn't it? Because through the forgiveness of God, that sin no longer is there, whether it was real or not. We don't have to be ashamed because the blood of Christ forgives us. So what's there to be ashamed of? Don't repeat whatever it is you might have done. But you don't have to be ashamed of the past because it no longer exists. It exists maybe in your mind because you remember what it was you did when you were 18. But it doesn't exist in terms of sin in God's estimation. The sin is gone. The memory may be there, but the sin is gone. Now that's what believing in Christ is all about. 
is that he is a real forgiver of sin. Yours, mine, and theirs. If you believe him, you shall not be ashamed. And then he says very clearly, For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all that call upon him. So he's saying again, in different words, it isn't blood, it's the Spirit of God. It's all that matters. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Eternal shall be saved. doesn't matter Chinese, African, uh, European, South American, it doesn't matter. Anybody. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? All these, he says, all these Gentiles, how can they call on someone that they haven't believed in? <laughs> how can you Jews call on Christ and you didn't believe in him? You rejected him and killed him. So they're all in the same boat, he says, Jew and Greek. How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? There are many, many people on this earth today who have not really heard of Christ. <coughs> people in the jungles of Africa. People in the jungles of Indonesia. India, China, so on. There have been missionaries go out from the Israelite nations primarily, taking the Bible in the name of Jesus. But there are probably billions of people on the earth today who know very little about Him. How much do you know about uh, Buddha? How much do you know about Allah? Very little. You've heard the name, but you don't know anything really about them unless you've studied into the pagan Eastern religions. And what good did that do you? <laughs> so, he says, how could they be called? And then he explains the process. How are they going to believe in Christ whom they have not really heard? How shall they hear without somebody to speak it? How will they hear without a preacher? So he's going through a process here. Notice what he says. And how shall they preach except they be sent? There are a lot of people who send themselves to preach, who set themselves up as preachers. And most of them are dumb as a post they are not preachers and they don't have the authority or the credentials to be preachers you have to be sent from God to be a preacher so he says they can't know it unless they hear it and they can't hear it unless they hear it from someone whom God has sent as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. So the ones that God is send, sending are going to be teaching a gospel of peace and bringing good tidings. Now he's quoting from Isaiah 40 and other scriptures which say the same thing. And God has set it up so that he would reveal the truth how did we hear it? From someone God sent. How did he get sent to us? Through God's calling. Herbert Armstrong did not find the truth on his own. Just to reiterate what I said earlier about us. His wife told him about the Sabbath. 
and about got her head knocked off. I'm going to prove her wrong. Uh-oh, now you're in it, buddy. Because <laughs> he couldn't do that. So God called him unbeknownst to him. He was a vessel of mercy. Called him, he was vain, cocky, advertising man, thought he had the world by the tail. And God knocked him down and took his business away and began to work with him. He didn't appoint himself to the ministry. God led him to the truth and led him to the uh, Seventh-day Church of God. He had nothing to do with it. God did it all. Just like he... Did Paul have anything to do with being a preacher on his own? Pharisee of the Pharisees, looked up to by the whole Jewish nation... And he got knocked down on the road to Damascus and blinded, Damascus and blinded. And then God said, why are you fighting me, Paul? Huh? (laughs) He thought he was righteous. No, he wasn't. So Paul knew very well that he had been called of God and sent by God and therefore was qualified to preach. And had been ordained an apostle by Peter and James and John. So they'll be bringing a gospel of peace. And yet I hear people who are self-styled preachers today who are preaching what they think is the gospel, and yet they're promoting lying and theft right here on this property and other places. Is that the gospel of peace? Or is that division and breaking of the law of God? They're not sent by God. God says they ran, but I did not send them. Not in Ezekiel, somewhere back there. They have not obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? Even Isaiah, who was inspired and sent of God, all the prophets were. God sent them. They didn't get there on their own. I mean, here's... uh, Which one am I thinking of... uh, that says, I'm just a, I just pick sycamore fruit. I'm just a herdsman. Amos, I guess it was. Uh, what? You want me to go speech? Yep. <laughs> well, wait a minute. Moses. But I stutter. I can't do this. No, no, no. I'm sending you. So anybody that thinks that they are to preach had better have some background that shows God sent them to do it. Because if you call yourself, it's you. It isn't God. Isaiah says, who's believed our report? So even the ones that God chose and sent, nobody believed. So then, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So you're not going to have faith in God unless you hear the Word of God... And the Word of God is not going to be heard unless there's a preacher whom God sent to show it to you. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, verily, their sound went out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Isaiah, Hosea, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. The Word of God has gone out. Uh, It did then, 
and it has gone out now via the Bible, but nobody believes what the book says. It's out there. It hasn't gone everywhere. But this is a prophecy. It's been partially fulfilled up till now. But it is about to be fulfilled totally and entirely by the remnant that God calls together and the two that He sends out from them to preach it to the ends of the earth. And then the end will come, just as right after they die. So, it's a prophecy that had been partially fulfilled at that point. Paul himself and the apostles did not reach the whole earth. They reached into Israel and into the Gentiles to some degree. But every eye will see Christ. And it's going to be preached to everybody on earth before He returns to be seen. And it may not be in every village, but TV goes pretty well everywhere. And even though society is imploding and over 90% of the earth's population is going to be dead before it's over, when the two witnesses die, there's still television, there's still phones, there's still... Uh, all that, because it says the whole earth is going to have a party. And if they get killed in Jerusalem, uh, if you don't have modern communication, the people on the other side of the earth aren't going to know about it, except through mass communication. So I think it's pretty obvious that if they're going to party for three and a half days, uh, they all have to hear instantaneously, and it'll, it'll be more like New Year's Day coming around the world. You know, oh, hippie, hip, hooray, they're dead finally, and they'll quit tormenting us. Boy, are they being for a shock. Because they didn't pay attention to the message. And then will come the seven last plagues. And that's not going to be pretty. But I say, did not Israel know? First, Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people. And by a foolish nation, I will anger you. So... Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found of them that sought me not. I was made manifest to them that ask not after me. So God says, I call whom I will call. I have mercy on whom I have mercy, told Moses. Uh, and today, he does the same thing. You are made into a vessel of honor, or you are left as a vessel of dishonor to be called later on. And thankfully, we've been called now with a higher calling of the promise of the New Testament. Isaiah was very bold. It didn't come from us. So you people who think that just because you're the blood of Israel are saved and are righteous and are in the good graces of God, you better think again. <laughs> because circumcision is nothing. But to Israel, he says... All day long I have stretched forth my hands to a disobedient and gainsaying people who would not believe. And Herbert Armstrong stretched out his hand, just as God did, just as Isaiah did, to this nation, and not very many listened. Nothing has changed. What was is. Uh, there's nothing new under the sun. Israel is in the same condition then as they are now as they were then, disobedient and against God. So, he's making the point pretty clearly here then that uh, you better believe in Christ and you better follow 
forward in faith, believing the things He says, and in salvation, and in His grace, and in His mercy. Don't forget the law. Obey. Serve God. The law of righteousness is there to protect us. But if we do make mistakes, the blood of Christ is there to forgive us and save us. And it isn't your physical heritage or your greatness, but the mercy of God that we all live under and can be thankful for and cry out for the forgiveness that we need to be saved. So believe Him when He says it. And I've said many times, even in this series, don't worry about your past. Christ took care of that. Worry about now and the future. Live now and tomorrow, not yesterday. So let's stop there.